Hello, Bill. Good morning, Matt. Welcome to the DMZ, everybody. So this is Thursday morning. We've had two speaker votes with Jim Jordan coming up short. We don't, I don't think we know if there's a third vote today. There's been some talk about it, but uh, we don't know if Jordan's going to insist on that vote if he doesn't have the votes. So we are, you know, as uh, sometimes is the case in the DMZ, a little um, uh, beholden to events, but we'll do our best to, to muddle through with the information that we have. We're recording a little later in the week than we like, hoping that maybe there had been some sort of denouement or development, but here we are stuck in the middle with you, Bill. We don't know how this is going to shake out. I will say, um, as of Thursday morning, it appears unlikely that Jim Jordan will be able to muster the 17 votes required to become speaker. Um, There are reports that he is trying to cajole the New York delegation by offering them uh, to change the SALT requirements. You can probably speak at greater length about that. <laughs> but there's also talk that Jordan's enemies, his political enemies, his, the Republicans against Jordan, have been strategically um, voting for him so that they can show momentum of him losing votes. Do you, right. I don't know if you buy that, uh, but it would be smart <laughs> if they were doing that, assuming right. that he didn't, you know, assuming they, they waited to pull that after he had, he had already lost. Uh, do you, do you buy any, any of that? Uh, I mean, I, I have no obvious reason to think that it's made up, although the shift in votes from vote one to vote two were pretty small. Uh, so they, they added four and they lost two. So it doesn't, if that is a game plan, it's, it's kind of safe for vote three because there wasn't all that much shift in vote two. Uh, and regardless of whether it's true or not, what, what I think is more important is that the, uh, by and large, the initial holdouts stuck to their position. Yeah. Despite a very virulent pressure campaign, which I got to say, Matt, I mean, you know, you often very nice to me and say when I'm right about things. You know, my inclination was that the moderates would fold in the wake of such a campaign, that they they were more likely to fold than vice versa because we know the Matt Gateses have a nihilistic bent and are happy to burn it all down. And the moderates are more like, well, we, we just got to do what we got to do to keep to keep yeah. things functioning around here. But they seem to lack the trust in Jordan, uh, at least these 22. Uh, they're willing, even though folks are saying to them, you're going to get a primary challenge. Or worse, right. credible death threats in right. at least one case. But Bill, you know, the, the old Yates line, uh, the best lack all conviction, the worst are full of passionate intensity, is true oftentimes. There's an asymmetry, um, partly because the most fiery convicted people tend to be the radicals, and partly because the people who care about the institution, who care about governing, are not likely to be terrorists. They're not likely to act. And I mean, it's a fraught time to use that term, but as legislative terrorists, right? If you care about functioning government, you're going to lose in a game of chicken against a nihilist. Although in this case, from what has transpired so far, Jordan recognized that he had to make 
the relative moderates comfortable with him. And he was trying to put out some uh, messaging and some offers like, you know, I'm going to keep the government open. We're going to find a way on Ukraine aid. Uh, And so apparently one of his um, proposals was, I will get behind a stopgap spending bill. And we're we're in a stopgap bill period where uh, Kevin McCarthy's last act was a 47-day bill to keep the government open through November 17th. So they got to pass something after that point. Jordan said, okay, let's do one through April. Clean bill. Uh, But the catch is that in the debt limit bill that passed several months ago, there's a fallback provision that says if the if Congress doesn't pass the 12 separate spending bills to fund the government, so not a big omnibus, but the individual bills, if they don't do that by the end of the calendar year, December 31st, then an automatic 1% cut hits across the board, excepting for you know, Social Security, Medicare. So it would hit not just the non-military, but the military spending. And so uh, even if that would have... So so we have 22 Jordan holdouts. Seven of them are on the Appropriations Committee and five are on the Armed Services Committee. And we have statements from individual members of those committees who who, who were against Jordan. And we have one, Steve Womack, who's on Appropriations, saying essentially... You know, we don't like the fact that Jordan voted for for shutdown. For he voted against that that CR uh, earlier, uh, and then you had Jen Kiggins, uh, Armed Services, saying we don't like this plan that's going to lead to a one percent cut because that's going to cut the the defense budget, which we yeah one percent one percent seems pretty small to me, but it, it's treated as if it's a catastrophic, and maybe right. and maybe it is. Um, they take it very seriously, and maybe at a time with. What's happening with Israel and Ukraine? It's of even more importance than normal. Right. If you if you do one percent off of current levels without accounting for inflation, that's an even once you bring inflation to the mix, that's an even deeper cut. Um, so uh, so basically, Jordan didn't have so one. I think the substance of his proposal was insufficient, and he brings no track record to this to this dance. He's he's never passed things. He's only been a legislative terrorist. So. Uh, again, I I might have thought that that wouldn't have mattered that they be that the mods would be too afraid to oppose him. But these are the folks saying enough is yeah. enough. Well, I would say two things quickly. I mean, one is um, the same muscles that you use to pass a bill are muscles you use to become speaker. And so it may be that he's really all you need is if all you need are uh, four or five people to stop somebody or to stop something. Uh, that's that's a different skill set than actually getting 217 votes. And Jordan, I guess, has no record of garnering <laughs> those kinds of votes to pass any legislation, much, la- much less to make himself speaker. Um, so uh, why should, you know, on one hand, you know, why why expect anything less of him? Um, and I forgot my second point. So uh, <laughs> but am I right about that, Bill? What do you think? Right about, well, about just. I mean, he has. If he's never passed a bill, the right. House. He, they're trying to. They're trying to count votes and whip votes, uh, but they have no experience doing it. Like unlike 
someone like a like an Eric Cantor, who bad example because he lost a, a Republican primary, but Eric Cantor would have been pretty equipped to probably become speaker had he not lost his primary. Right. I mean, a speaker vote, a Senate majority leader or Senate minority leader vote, these are inside games. These are games that are built on relationships, relationships that are built by passing legislation, by fundraising for people's elections. Uh, so the things that help allow you to survive primaries, you know, that's that's outside game. That's how do I keep the base appeased? And so you had, you know, Steve Bannon, uh, who has this War Room podcast and Rumble, you know, online show. He was already working with Matt Gates to help oust McCarthy, whipping up sentiment in the base uh, and f- feeding a sense amongst the Gates crew that they were on the right side of what the base wants. I mean, it's sort of a, you know, a symbiotic relationship. Uh, then they try to leverage that into pressuring the Jordan holdouts. And, and Perry was, I mean, I don't know exactly like, you know, who greenlighted what, uh, but there was evidence that Jordan's allies plus Bannon were going to feel like, like state party chairs and having them pressure uh, the holdouts. And you have Bannon on his own show saying, you should call these offices. You should. Now, of course, they weren't saying death threats. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, that's the point I was going to make. I'm surprised how little um, Fox News and conservative media mattered. It just it, I would have imagined that that it would have been like Mark Levin and, and, and Laura Ingram and and whatever. You know, there would have been like a full court press to back Jordan. Maybe it happened and no no one noticed or it doesn't well, you, even matter. You listen to more of your shows than I do. I haven't listened to all the shows. Well, I haven't either, but nothing is nothing has broken through that would lead you to, oh my gosh, Rush Limbaugh said this. Like th- right. that moment hasn't happened. Now it could be that because all you need are four Republicans to block anything, that some of these people are just immune to pressure. Like is Mario Diaz-Balart worried about someone primarying him. I mean, well, honestly, it's I a think different they, world. They might be. No. I mean, even if you're in a, a a purplish or even straight up blue district, you can still get primaried. You still have you still have to serve a Republican primary with a probably a very conservative pocket of voters, even if they're not the median voter of the district. Yeah, but uh, but all we need all all anybody needs are four Republicans who are either super courageous or I think more importantly feel immune to pressure. And so that's a small list of people. And so I I actually, I don't believe that any of the holdouts feel completely immune. Uh, I I think they recognize that they are taking a risk here of being a a personification of the swamp. I mean, you literally had Steve Bannon and Matt Rosendale yesterday saying this you know, this is the fight we've been waiting for. The the swamp doesn't want change. That's why they're fighting this. Uh, uh, Bannon said that uh, uh, Biden was was clever in signaling a proposal for a one hundred dollar billion supplemental package of aid to Israel, Ukraine, Ukraine, Taiwan, and and the southern border because it was a quote unquote snack for the defense contractor lobby. And then Rosendale said, how many of these members ha- hold Raytheon stock? When I mean, they're talking like they're on democracy now, you know, not yeah. on a war room. Uh, so, 
and you know the phone calls came in. I mean, people did call, and maybe not all these phone calls are from their own districts. Uh, but the phone calls came in, and so if you were a weak kneed person, you would say, "I don't want this heat. Yeah, I don't need to take. I don't take the risk of being chastised as a swamp creature." Uh, okay, then then I'm going to uh, take what you said seriously. If and but as we're recording this, Jim Jordan is not the speaker. He may still become the speaker. Uh, the latest report that I saw was from Jake Sherman at Punchbowl which suggested that uh, Jordan may just sort of never surrender, never bow out, but just fade away. <laughs> let McHenry become, uh, let, let the Speaker Pro Tem, Patrick McHenry, essentially assume the duties of Speaker, while Jordan's candidacy just goes uh, underground until January. And so Jordan would never have to actually admit defeat. He would just sort of fade away, at least temporarily. But uh, so Jordan may someday become speaker. He may become speaker later today. Who knows? Uh, I don't want to have too much egg on my face. But again, as we're recording this, it does not look likely. And um, look, if Jordan had become speaker, which I think a couple days ago looked, looked much more likely, seemed very plausible a couple days ago. If Jordan had become speaker, Bill, then I think we would be fairly condemning the Republican Party. I think we would be saying that the Trumpification is uh, is now complete, mm -hmm. that we uh, Republicans have taken somebody who is an election denier, a, an advocate of the big lie, and made him the speaker. And so since we would have probably said that, I, I can tell you I would have, um, I think it's fair to say, like, they did that didn't happen. A handful of Republicans said, no, we're not going to do this. Sorry. Well, I was say in a second, I'm going to tell you why I think it's very smart politics for the Republican Party that they dodged a bullet. But but uh, I don't want to filibuster. Go ahead. Well, I think I think even those 22 people holding out, I think they have a lot more quiet sympathizers who don't really love the idea of Jim Jordan as speaker. Uh, they at a minimum, I think I think the majority of the conference may not be a huge majority. I think the majority of the conference wants to keep the government open, wants to aid Ukraine, wants to aid Israel, uh, don't like the idea of the House being in paralysis while these deadlines loom. Uh, so uh, I think they're probably getting some quiet encouragement. And again, it's, it's, it's hard to say this with confidence because the mistrust runs so deep in the House and not just between, um, you know, different factions of Republicans, but also between Democrats and Republicans more broadly. Uh, but I, and I have a column about this that's going to come out later today at the Washington Monthly. I don't see what the way out is except for a bipartisan vote that empowers the current acting speaker pro tem, Patrick McCarthy, to- McHenry. McHenry, sorry, to, to be able to move legislation. Uh, and my recommendation in my column is that Democrats shouldn't get persnickety about the conditions about that. There's the proposal out there from a handful of modern Democrats saying, OK, we'll give McHenry power in 15 day increments and he can only move the bill to keep the government open. He can only move a bill to aid Ukraine and Israel, but he can't do anything else. And I'm just like, you know what? Just don't be difficult about yeah. it. Uh, the, the, like those, those things are the big things. And those are the things that I think will pass with big uh, bipartisan votes. Yeah. But if- And by the way, Bill, I mean, you and I both uh, thought Democrats should have just voted present 
and saved McCarthy. Yeah. And um, maybe it'll all work out. Maybe they'll just end up with McHenry, you know, similar names, similar <laughs> vibe. In fact, McHenry was handpicked by McCarthy to to fill this role yeah. um, in case of emergency. Um, but we were close to getting Speaker Jim Jordan. We may still get Speaker Jim Jordan, but we were really close a couple of days ago. At least we thought we were close. It yeah, seemed I mean, like. And, 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 and if that had happened, Democrats would have borne some portion of responsibility for allowing that to happen. So right. maybe they dodged, you know, they got lucky again, but it's, it's playing with fire, I think. I mean, we were on the same page going into this. Uh, I, I would not have taken the gamble on ousting McCarthy. I don't, I don't uh, retract the position, but if my North star has always been, uh, or I don't think the Democratic North star should be, what's going to maintain stability, prevent chaos, keep the economy on the good path that it's on so GDP can continue to grow and that would that and that would behoove Biden's re-election in, in November 2024. If this ends up as swapping McCarthy for McHenry, who was McCarthy's right-hand man, he was by his side during the debt limit deal, he has been vocally against shutdowns, he's for Ukraine aid. Um, if that's how it ends up, then yeah, it worked out for Democrats. Um, uh, it still would be a gamble that I would have taken, but it worked yeah. out. Uh, and that's why, like, my thinking for the McCarthy vote applies to this potential vote for McHenry. Don't get hung up over getting an overt concession, which makes it so much harder for Republicans to come on board. I mean, they will be much more vulnerable to a primary challenge yeah. if they're overtly locking arms with Democrats, ceding powers that they have to Democrats. What power do you need exactly? What bill? Do you need to pass beyond keeping the government open and aiding Israel and Ukraine to help Democrats in November? What bill are you worried about Republicans passing on their own when whatever party line bill they pass is DOA in the Senate anyway? Are yeah. you worried about impeachment? McCarthy couldn't even get 218 <laughs> for an impeachment inquiry. How do you get 218 for an actual impeachment? You've got you know, a good number of Biden's Republicans out there who aren't, aren't excited about it. And even if they got that vote, it's not going to convict Biden. It's going to be an obviously trumped up. Uh, but I think there's a part of Democrats who like the chaos. They like chaos in the Republican Party. They think chaos in the Republican Party makes it more likely that they have a good, that Democrats have a good 2024. And frankly, I think Jim Jordan, in many ways, uh, they might have liked him as speaker. I know there's a downside, is catastrophic potentially downside uh, to Jim Jordan uh, as speaker. But Democrats seemed OK with that, uh, at least willing to chance it. And um so I think Republicans, maybe assuming Jordan does not become speaker, uh, dodged a political bullet. So let me explain to you why I think that's not as widely appreciated. Right. So despite all of Trump's problems, there's a lot of issues in which Donald Trump would win in 2024. If the economy is the number one issue in 2024, if voters go to the polls in November of 2024 and the economy is on their mind, Trump will probably win or at least fare very well. Um, but Trump has real vulnerabilities on just a few things, but they're really important things. One of them is liberal democracy itself. One of them is abortion. Guess who reinforces the negatives that would elect Joe Biden? Not just Donald Trump. Jim Jordan specifically is implicated in January 6th in the uh, attempt to overturn the election 
and on trying to pass uh, strict abortion laws uh, with no exceptions. I think that's right. Yeah. So if that's your message, if you want to talk about those issues in 2024, it would be helpful to have not just Donald Trump as your nominee, but Speaker Jim Jordan as the avatar of House Republicanism. I, I think there's a certain strand of Democrats that that want that for, because they think he's the better foil. Uh, and they do believe that chaos is good for them. I mean, chaos is Republican chaos is good for Democrats, in my view, but only to a point, not to the point where the chaos spills over and actually harms the economy and harms the day-to-day -day lives of average Americans. Uh, I think Democrats get the best of both worlds if they help Republicans empower Patrick McHenry at the great disdain of Steve Bannon and Matt Gates and those folks. So they'll they'll be grinding their teeth. They'll be shaking their fists. So you're still getting intra-party division on the right, but without the chaos in terms of actual governance in Washington. You're making you're pre we can make Washington functional and Matt Gates and Steve Bannon can 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 go cry conservative tears. All right. Uh, any final thoughts? I mean, obviously, we see through a glass darkly and we're kind of uh, uh, in danger here of, of, of uh, and in fact, something may have happened while we're talking. We have no idea. Uh, before we move to uh, BB and Trump, any uh, anything else to add? Uh, no, I, I, I don't think so. I, I, I think that I would assume we're going to be debating the speaker pro tem power soon enough. And just my final thought is yeah. that uh, Democrats should like take the win. If, 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 if that's what they're getting out of this, like that's, that's a win for them that the, the gamble has paid off for you. You know, don't yeah. get greedy and try to like yeah. add extra conditions to it. This thing where McHenry was uh, secretly appointed by uh, Kevin McCarthy to be uh, the the speaker pro tem that I think that has to do with the fact that that the speaker of the house is second in line to the presidency in, in terms of the order of succession and this was this was put in after September 11th I think as a safeguard to make sure that you couldn't like decapitate the U.S. government I think that uh, it should be implicit that whoever becomes the acting speaker would at least temporarily have the power of the Speaker of House. So maybe we need to actually um, make that and make that official. But that would seem logical to me. Better. Well, I th I think it would make sense like, if if you had that power simply by the the elected Speaker writing a name down on a piece of paper secretly and only you know aware of it after the fact. Like that to me is not enough to transfer line of succession power. You need a vote in the House to affirm that. So some are like, "Well, why should he, why should McHenry get this?" Well, he doesn't. He shouldn't just get it. Like, take a vote, <laughs> take a vote right now to give him that power, and then then he has a real mandate, just akin to what you know McCarthy had. So I see maybe it needs to be maybe it's a supermajority or something. Uh, maybe he has three months unless a supermajority denies it. I don't know what it is. I'm just saying. Um, what's happening right now is not written in stone. Uh, we are kind of learning as we go. And I think reforms would be, uh, as long as we don't have unintended consequences, negative consequences, I, I think we need to, to 
think this through because right now we don't have a speaker. And in, and if we really needed one, I don't know what we would do. But Bill, I, quickly, before we move on to Israel, and last week we, we talked uh, about the terror attack on Israel, but uh, I did mention the SALT thing at the top of the show. Oh, right, yeah. So basically, this is a uh, state and local tax. Um, uh, blue states typically, right, like New York, are, are high-tax states. And it used to be that, I think it used to be that they could you could deduct right. your state and local taxes from your federal taxes. Trump changed that, um, I think, basically to stick it to blue states. Yep. Um, but also, I mean, there is, a, I don't think Trump cared about this, but there is a sense that uh, SALT was a regressive tax that actually- yeah, There, there meant- are there some, some progressive Democrats that don't like it either, even though- some of these Democrats are in New York and California. So it's been a bit, it's an inter-party tension around SALT on both sides of the aisle. You have these three Long Island, uh, I, I think they're all Long Island. They might be New York suburbs too. I mean, I don't, I don't think Lawler is in that camp, even though he's, even though he's upstate New York. Um, but I think there are three other New Yorkers who have explicitly like SALT's one of our things. Uh, and we want the speaker to, uh, to, to fix this in a way that's beneficial to us. Apparently Jordan was willing to play ball here in, in, uh, over the last 24 hours. Uh, but that's only three people. Like he needs yeah. more than just that. The, and I think the problem is he can't make the same kind of transactional deal with the, with the appropriation committee holdouts and the armed services member holdouts, because I think they just lack the trust in him that he will, that he will fall through. Yeah. And I think that's, he lacks credibility with them, and I think deservedly so. Right now, the uh, uh, I think blue states can deduct um, these. These states like New York can deduct ten percent of their state and local taxes. They want to bump it up to twenty percent, and I think Jordan would go along with that. But as you said, uh, maybe too little, too late. Let's let's turn now. Um, you and I both, Bill, wrote columns this week. Um, specifically about Donald Trump's comments about Hezbollah and about Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, what uh, what was your take on that, Bill? You know, I, I'm not upset about the Hezbollah comment. I think that's that's gotten the most attention. But I think they're, they're very smart. I think yeah, but I mean, I've, I watched the speech. I mean, like, is it the best choice of words? No. But the point Trump was making there was that they sort of these are really tough, tough characters. Yeah. So you you have to be smarter than them to beat them, and our current yeah. leaders aren't being smart. Like you, I would he, introduce a couple words into his, uh, you know, lexicon like canny, devious, maybe yeah. devious. Well, devious sure. I mean, obviously, there's there are more politically appropriate words to use, but this is sort of classic Trump. I'm go- I'm not going to use the words that the media says I have to use, but you get me, you get what I'm saying. Like that actually feeds the bond between Trump and his people because they do see what he, because they did see the whole speech. They didn't get what he's saying. Like he, there's really nothing in that speech saying, I think Hezbollah is good. Yeah. So, well, when, I, normally when you call somebody smart, that is a, a compliment. This is very, reminds me a lot of, of the Bill, Bill Maher, Famously, after 9-11, saying, like, you know, say what you will about the terrorists, yeah, right. but they weren't cowards, right? right. But, he was, um, but he wasn't saying they were good. He wasn't saying, I agree with what they did. I mean, I mean, Trump literally said Hezbollah was vicious. So if you're saying someone's smart and vicious, you're not making it's not It's not really a compliment. Uh, but normally the term smart denotes a, as a positive connotation. Well, that's why, that's why we have a thing here. But this is more like, this is, that's more of a political 
to do than like a real substantive problem in my eye. Uh, now the Netanyahu comments are much more interesting. Um, so did, did, did you watch the speech? I certainly saw uh, the clips. So in the case, I'll, I'll tell you what I saw and you tell me if I'm, if I'm wrong. I did not watch the speech in its entirety. Uh, and in regards to Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, Trump was talking about the decision to kill Soleimani, uh, the head of the Iranian Quds Force. And Trump claims that, uh, that Benjamin Netanyahu and Israel um, refused to uh, support or to assist in this effort. And later, Bibi allegedly claimed credit well, for what it. Trump, what Trump said was that they were working together on it. Bibi pulls out at the last minute. I mean, anyway, Trump tell this is like a five minute story in the speech. Like it's not just like an offhand comment. Uh, like it is a, it is like he goes out of his way. And mind you, he's in West Palm Beach. He isn't one of the most Jewish communities in America, which is effectively one of the most Jewish communities in the world uh, outside of Israel. Uh, and he's like, and he's basically like, uh, you know, we stand with Israel. And there's like a dramatic pause. But there was one time when I wasn't too happy with Israel. <laughs> I've never I've never told this story before. Some people say it's classified information, but I don't think so. Anyway, uh, and, they, and so it's this, it's this big, dramatic thing where, like, he's working with Israel. Things are going so great. And all of a sudden, Israel calls and says, we're out. And he talks to one of his American generals. And, he, and he, he's like, he's like playing on a scene where like he's like being the general on himself and the general's like whatever you say sir we can do it sir uh it's your call and i said let's let's do it let's do it and it was perfect it was a perfect operation with precision it was magnificent and then then you know he tries to take credit for it you know that didn't make me feel too good uh uh so i mean it's really way out of your way to this is like four days after yeah. the Hamas attack. Now, that, yeah, that's the context, right? That's the context. It would be like, you know, putting it like in personal terms. It's like if if you had a buddy who's a really good friend, like from college, and his and his wife died, and like three or four days later, you're like, you know, I'm obviously supporting him, but he used to cheat at golf all the time. Mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you, he's, you know, it's just like. Okay, maybe it's true, but does it is now a good time well, may, to bring that up? Well, maybe it's true, you say, Matt. Here's what I mean. So I wrote about this the day after the speech. Like, just the speech of itself was sort of fast. Like, what? Why is Trump doing this? Yes. You know, well, you could we, say, well, his people won't care. Even like conservative Jews in Florida won't care because they love Trump so much. And there's evidence to that. I mean, there was an article in Politico saying, "Hey, no one's done more for Trump." For, no one's done more for Israel than Trump, so I don't care what he has said about Netanyahu. Was, I, I'm not arguing that it's going to like hurt him politically because I really don't don't know. But I think it's very revealing about his character and his approach to crises. So, so my initial take was this is not the first time he's been upset with Netanyahu. We actually have evidence of other episodes while he was president and after the election where he got uh, when Netanyahu got under his skin because. He just continually makes everything about foreign policy about him and his own ego. So anything that Netanyahu does that goes in the, flies in the face of that, whether it's upstaging him at a joint press conference, whether it's refusing to attack Joe Biden before the, the election, accepting the results after the election, all these things. Congratulating 
right. congratulating Joe Biden for the victory. So that, that one was, apparently really, really yes, bothered him. Yes. And I think he's, that he's, probably is the underlying motive behind this. I mean, he said F him to a reporter, um, Bar uh, Barack Ravid, who wrote a book called Trump's Peace uh, about after Netanyahu accepted the results of the election. So like that was my initial take, all based on all of that, not even getting into the fact checking because I didn't even know how to fact check it. Uh, then after the after that, Last Friday, NBC News runs a report talking to American military officials saying Israel was never part of the military operation in the first place. They didn't back out of it. They were never in it. They provide intelligence uh, onto Soleimani's location, but they weren't part of the military operation. Uh, and so that, so that then piqued my interest because then, it's, then I, I focused on the credit, because Trump claimed that Bibi took credit, literally took me five seconds of Googling to find Bibi on the day of the operation saying, Donald Trump deserves all the credit. <laughs> so, uh, so think about this. <clears throat> I mean, how much of a narcissistic, yeah. pathological liar do you have to be to go to West Palm Beach four days after the worst attack on Israel in 50 years to lie about the Israeli prime minister. Now, again, I'm not saying it means it's going to hurt him politically, but it says something about the there's no there's no political upside to doing. It. He's not going to gain votes by doing it. Like I understand lying because of your political incentive. There's no incentive here to do that beyond the fact that Netanyahu is getting media attention at this type of crisis and Donald Trump isn't. Yeah. Well, Donald Trump tried to make 9-11 about himself. Exactly. Exactly. So, and he's, not, he's not even a politician at that point. It's just something's going on in the world. How can I make it about me? That is the driving force of everything he does. And we're seeing this in Trump at the same time you're watching Joe Biden in a crisis, and maybe you don't agree with every policy choice that he's made, but try to tell me that he is suffering from dementia right now. Yeah. He is acting the way a president should. He is present. He is public. He is answering questions. He is taking uh, politically sensitive trips abroad. Like That is the kind of stable, sober leadership that just the average voter expects, whether or not you like Joe Biden personally. And Donald Trump is acting like a wounded five-year-old. Yeah. This reminds me of our previous conversation, which is where, okay, so do you remember when Russia invaded uh, Ukraine, Donald Trump praised Putin for being like a genius or something, yeah. right? It was because of the propaganda aspect of it. Yeah. Um, so, so Trump praised Putin. So here he is criticizing an ally. Um, so I think that also speaks to his character. Look, Benjamin Netanyahu is a right-wing, tough political figure. His brother, Yanni uh, Netanyahu, was literally killed, the first guy in the raid on Entebbe, to get hostages out. These are This is a tough guy. He's not some, you know, effete liberal. Um, but he's not authoritarian enough, apparently, 
for Donald Trump to praise. And I think you're right. Some of it has to do with the tension, but there's a, uh, that Trump craves the attention BB's getting. But I think some of it has to do with it. Trump likes authoritarian figures better than leaders of democracy. Well, I think that's true. Uh, and I think that it obviously Yoni. Speaks, to Yoni his, Netanyahu. speaks to his attitude Yoni. towards Russia and, and Ukraine. Uh, I, I don't know if he thinks Netanyahu is not authoritarian enough. I don't know if that's really the thing that drives Trump here. Uh, Has Trump ever criticized South, uh, 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 the leader of North Korea or of China or of Russia the way he just criticized the the prime well, minister? Maybe, of maybe China. He, I know he said some nice things about about G before, but maybe he said some meanings about China. Uh, but I also think this is a separate point. I, I do urge folks to read the New York Times op-ed by Gershon Gorenberg about Netanyahu. I mean, like, I mean, Trump lied about Netanyahu. It doesn't mean I think Netanyahu is like this awesome dude. Like he has, I, I, I've never liked uh, his politics. I'm highly critical. I'm highly critical of his approach to the peace process, which is to not have one. I'm critical of the settlement expansions. I'm critical of the judicial over, overhaul that he was pushing. And the Gorenberg piece, uh, I, I'm curious if there's a counter to it, but I, I thought it was very uh, convincing uh, that Netanyahu basically orchestrated a devil's bargain that propped up Hamas in Gaza because he wanted to keep Fatah, which is dominant in the West Bank, separated from Hamas to derail the peace process. You know, Fatah was trying to get a two-state solution. Hamas doesn't want a two-state solution. Uh, so he basically yeah, they, they allowed... went from the river to the sea. Yeah. That's a one-state solution. That's right. That's right. And... Um, and Netanyahu allowed Qatar to financially prop up Hamas on the notion that it was better to have them contained in Gaza, keep Fatah out of it. Uh, and, you know, they also tried to like you know pacify uh, Hamas with work permits and, th and things like that. And so they, and, and then and layer on top of that, that because of Trump's corruption charges, that he couldn't put together a governing coalition without making deals with the farthest of the far right in Israel, which which then put incompetent people into sensitive positions for ideological reasons, which further left them vulnerable to the Hamas attack. Uh, so there's a lot to say about Netanyahu's leadership here, which is not good. Uh, but that doesn't say that it makes sense for Trump to, to lie about Netanyahu uh, in West Palm Beach four days after the attack. Um, <clears throat> I have found it interesting how, uh, Jordan, whether we're, have you seen this bill on Twitter? People will be talking about Jordan. And it'll be like, uh, Jordan doesn't have enough votes to become speaker. Jordan's refusing to meet with the UAE. You know, and it's like <laughs> Jordan has never had a better moment than, uh, than this week in terms of publicity. Watch out Jordan. Cause Trump might get jealous. He could be coming for you. Uh, we should probably call it that. I have to go write a column about Jordan. Guess which one? Uh, Bill, anything uh, else to say or anything you want to plug? Well, keep an eye on the WashingtonMonthly.com website for my piece on the speaker battle today. And please sign up for the Washington Monthly newsletter, which you can do through the Washington Monthly website and get it via email or get it on Substack, WashingtonMonthly.substack.com. And I got to write the latest edition after we get off, uh, after we're done with the show here. All right. Read me at the Daily Beast. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Matt K. Lewis. Check out my podcast, Matt Lewis and the News. 
where podcasts are found. Get my book, Filthy Rich Politicians, and follow us at DMZ Show on Twitter. Bill Share, always a pleasure. Take care.